Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 21, The Story of Writing, Part 1. As a fan of the History of the World podcast and history in general, I first want to thank the show for giving me the opportunity to record this quick little intro for you guys. My name is Tom and I am the host of the Myth Podcast. You'll find it as just Myth, all capital M-Y-T-H. It's on iTunes and Spotify and everywhere else. And if you're a fan of history, a fan of this show, a fan of stories about our past that dive into the nature of being human, then I think you'll like my show. Again, that's Myth or Myth Podcast, and you can find that anywhere you get your podcasts or check out more information on robotsradio.net. I shall post the link on the social media pages so that you can access this great new podcast. Thank you very much, Tom. But for now, let's get back to the History of the World podcast and the story of writing. So, it's time to take a bit of a break from the historical narrative and take a look at an important aspect of human development that has been a fundamental part of our story, the emergence of writing systems around the world. A means of communication without speaking, or even without actually being there. Writing is a means of recording information, very much like what I'm doing now by recording my own voice. I could have written a magazine article, but I chose to record my voice. It serves the same purpose to you as the receiver of the information. It also acts as a reference for that information, so it's indisputable because it's visibly there. It's not the memory of a conversation that can be questioned. This point alone is rather important because it is the necessity of the recording of information that is probably the reason why the written word flourished around 5,000 years ago when coalesced societies required administration to uphold the law of the city. And it is for this reason that we have a separator for the prehistoric and ancient periods. History refers to the written story of our past. So, therefore... If it's over 5,000 years old, it's before history and therefore prehistory. The problem for us is that the written word of 5,000 years ago is not written in any kind of modern language and it is not even written in any kind of modern alphabet. So how can we possibly know what anything written 5,000 years ago might possibly mean? The Rosetta Stone We mentioned the Rosetta Stone previously and told the story of its discovery in 1799 during episode 12. It was the French philologist Jean-Francois Champollion who made breakthroughs in the translation of Egyptian hieroglyphs thanks to the Rosetta Stone. Philology is related to the study of old languages. Egyptian hieroglyphs 
were a bit of a mystery previous to this. Being a pictorial style of writing, it would be natural to assume that the pictures told a story in comic book form. Champollion demonstrated otherwise. The Rosetta Stone was incredible because it contained the same passage of speech in three different languages. And this is thanks to something we mentioned in last week's podcast, the fact that it was created during the years of the Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt. The three styles of writing on the Rosetta Stone are Egyptian hieroglyphs, which was the style used in formal and religious contexts, Demotic script, which was the simplified everyday writing of the Egyptians, and finally, Ancient Greek, which was brought to Egypt by the Macedonians and Ptolemies, who were the royal house of Egypt. Although the Greek text was in Ptolemaic Greek, it was close enough to other known ancient Greek texts for philologists to make a good educated guess about the content and the contexts. There were examples of demotic texts that had been discovered, but there was a real limit to the specific ability to translate the demotic text. There emerged a theory that the hieroglyphic text could contain pictures that represent phonetic sounds rather than pictorial ideas. This was the breakthrough that Champollion needed to make significant advances in hieroglyphic and subsequently demotic script, which was discovered to be its cursive child. This would prove to be the platform to accelerate the understanding and translation of many Egyptian texts and scripts and open the door to many stories and values of ancient Egypt society. Certainly, the last nine podcast episodes on ancient Egypt would not have been possible in any way without the hard work of those philologists who have used the work of Champollion to translate the many artefacts, scriptures and monuments of ancient Egypt. So where did Egyptian hieroglyphs come from in the first place? Before writing. So we do actually have an ancient scripture which tells us of the origins of writing. There will be those of you who recall the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the earliest pieces of writing from ancient Mesopotamia, which told epic tales of mythological Sumerian kings of years gone by. Well, this is not the only Sumerian epic tale that has been discovered. Another example would be Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata. Within this epic we get a clue about the earliest form of writing. And so I quote, His speech was substantial and its contents extensive. The messenger, whose mouth was heavy, was not able to repeat it because the messenger, whose mouth was tired, was not able to repeat it. The Lord of Kulaba patted some clay and wrote the message as if on a tablet. Formerly, the writing of messages on clay was not established. Now, under the sun and on that day, it was indeed so. So this Sumerian artefact tells us of the very first instance of writing, and indeed, we do not find much in the way of evidence 
of writing before 5,000 years ago. Writing does appear to have emerged, and the different forms suggest it developed independently at a similar time during history. Certainly in Mesopotamia, it seems more likely that the earliest forms of writing would have more likely referred to agricultural transactions than spiritual messages. So we have to regard this as information, and therefore the earliest forms of writings must be the earliest recordings of information. And this could well take us back to the Upper Paleolithic cave painting as one of the earliest forms of visual communication. If we look for anything that dates before the Upper Paleolithic, that seems to be a recording of information, then we can go back to the Semliki River in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Semliki River is somewhere that we visited during the course of episode 12 of the first volume of podcasts about prehistory. It is here that cultures were creating harpoons carved from bone. These bones dated back to 90,000 years ago. Well, it's on the banks of the same river that another unusual bone was discovered, and this time it could have been around 20,000 years old. The bone artefact is called the Ishango bone, and it is etched with numerous parallel lines which have created a buzz of speculation around what they could mean since the discovery of the bone back in 1960, around the time when Congo was about to achieve independence from Belgium. There have been numerous ideas about what the engraved lines refer to, from mathematical calculations to human menstrual cycles, and even to it simply being a means to aid the human grip of the bone. So we're really not in any position to claim that this was an early form of communication, but it also must not be ignored. So, we should look for something from the prehistoric world whose purpose as a deliberate source of inscribed information is irrefutable. A number of clay tokens have been recovered from the Near East that date to the Neolithic and Chalcolithic periods of history, so after the agricultural revolution and before the ancient emergence of written script. These clay tokens are deliberately shaped and deliberately engraved. They do not appear to have a practical purpose, and by that I mean that they are not hand axes or microliths or something that would be used to cut or score. They appear to represent something, so therefore they have an abstract purpose. Denise Schmant Besserat is a French archaeologist born in the Marne Department of France. She was a professor at the University of Texas in the United States and she studied and published works on the very subject of the emergence of writing systems and the concepts and ideas which preceded and led to the birth of writing as we recognise it today. So somebody of her learning would be a good person to approach in regards to determining the meaning of these clay tokens. What Denise recognised is that not only were there similarities between clay tokens found in places where you'd expect there to be different societies, but that also later cuneiform symbols would resemble the tokens, and she believes that this points towards these tokens having a universal meaning to multiple societies, 
and that this must point towards a relationship with long-distance trade relationships. So if you can imagine that I owe you a bag of grain, but I don't have the bag of grain with me, I might give you one of these tokens as my promise to you that I will provide you with a bag of grain. However, likewise, if I were collecting taxes from you and I demanded grain from you as a contribution towards the city-state, you may require me to give you a receipt of this transaction so that one of my colleagues could identify that you had already paid your taxes. Therefore, I might provide you with a token that would prove the transaction actually happened. It can be no coincidence that the variety of tokens discovered seemed to very definitely increase during the Uruk period. Now, if we go back to Volume 1, Episode 22, then we explain how ancient societies emerged and how the cities of Mesopotamia went from being relatively small settlements to being huge urban and industrial centres, multi-layered and multi-skilled, and trading in more and more secondary goods. By secondary goods, we mean manufactured products such as rope, cloths and beer made from plants, or furniture or jewellery which require specialist expertise to produce. So the range of tokens needed to reflect the diverse range of products now available. This would also create a new problem where the amount of tokens that changed hands would have increased if larger societies wanted to trade larger amounts of goods. So therefore clay bulli were produced which were ball-shaped clay purses in which the relevant tokens could be placed before being pinched, shut and fired. Ultimately, these bullies would be stamped with information about their contents, so this could almost render the physical contents obsolete. Why would you need the tokens if the information was fired onto the side of the buller? Some sites continued to use clay tokens, whereas others stopped and favoured clay inscription. Therefore, instead of the bullie, a tablet with impressions of the tokens were created and fired, and this would look like a style of writing, and this in turn is believed to have been the first practical to produce cuneiform writing. Cuneiform I call it cuneiform, but you will also hear it pronounced as cuneiform. Cuneiform was not suddenly a uniform style of writing. It emerged and developed over time. So much as we have told the story of how it may have developed, it did not stop developing. So excavations from Mesopotamia from around 3000 BCE demonstrate the earliest forms of cuneiform writing, or even what some would describe as proto-cuneiform. Solid Clay tablets that could be held in your hand were inscribed with a wealth of information. At a glance, an ancient Sumerian carrying a clay tablet could resemble a modern human carrying an electronic tablet. There are instances of tablets that are larger than the handheld size, so it's fair to say that they were not a standard size. In order to translate the meaning of the information on these tablets, we rely on the work of philologists. 
Philology, as I've mentioned, is the study of the development of language and these early forms of writing are a vital part of this study. Firstly, the most common place to find these clay tablets were within the temple complexes of Mesopotamia, which does tend to point towards cuneiform tablet production being something of an elite thing reserved for the upper members of society. The workers in the fields would not need to know anything of cuneiform writing. We see symbols such as the cuneiform symbol for barley. Barley was one of the most important commodities of ancient Mesopotamia. The Mesopotamians would have produced an abundance of this and it also would have been important for the production of bread and beer. With societies living in cities with populations in the tens of thousands, good administration and distribution of agricultural yield would have been absolutely vital. Some of the earliest cuneiform tablets seem very pictorial by comparison to later cuneiform, so it was a style of writing which evolved over time. The inscriptions made on the wet clay were made with a stylus, normally made from a reed stem or a wooden twig which would have been pressed into the clay producing a wedge shape. Over time, the comparatively elaborate pictures would have simplified into less obvious symbols, which would have been universally understood due to their constant use. Cuneiform was versatile enough to be adopted by different societies, so the symbol for a fish could be the word for a fish in different languages. And as we have discovered during the podcast already, a lot of the societies of the Near East are believed to have spoken different languages, with the Semitic Amorites of the desert land speaking a different language to the Sumerians of Mesopotamian and then the later Indo-European Hittites of Anatolia. All of these societies adopted cuneiform despite their lingual differences. They were able to do it and it must have been a revelation to their societies when they first encountered it. Egyptian hieroglyphs. Some scholars claim that Egyptian hieroglyphs developed from early Sumerian script. Some state that Egyptian script emerged about a hundred years after cuneiform, but there really doesn't seem to be a confident consensus about this, and it would be wrong to claim one or the other. One of the biggest factors in my eyes when it comes to determining if there is a relationship is that the purpose of early Sumerian cuneiform seems to often be secular. But the earliest Egyptian hieroglyphs seem to refer to mythological and spiritual aspects, with many of the artefacts being from ceremonial objects and tombs. Therefore it is tempting for me to suggest that these two instances of the emergence of writing surely cannot be related. The counter-argument would be that these societies are very likely to have established trade links with one another. There is also good evidence of the Gerzian Egyptian culture of the 4th millennium BCE trading with Asiatic societies. The fact is that the societies of the Nile and the societies of Mesopotamia would have both specialised in using their respective rivers to generate a surplus of agricultural yield. So the Egyptians and Mesopotamians would perhaps have not been each other's favoured trade partners as they would already have a lot of what the other had a lot of. 
Both forms of writing developed into something that would combine images that represented ideas or subjects with syllabic symbols that would represent vocal sounds. This is something that confused many philologists who were trying to interpret the meaning of Egyptian hieroglyphs. Where they might have been looking at a picture of an animal believing the text would refer to a story about that animal, they didn't appreciate that the animal might simply represent a vocal sound, as if it were a letter of the alphabet. One of the largest differences we find between these early forms of writing and modern alphabets, such as the Latin alphabet, is that there could have been as many as a thousand symbols in common use at any one time. As you would expect, some symbols were used a whole lot more frequently than others, but it must have been some task to learn the art of reading and writing Egyptian hieroglyphs, and it would be reasonable to assume that literacy was a pleasure reserved for the most elite members of society. Although we can recognise the fact that both Egyptian hieroglyphs and Asiatic cuneiform were changing and evolving over time, the fact that they remained in place over time is also considerable. Both were still in use, even if in decreasing frequency, right through until the common era of the last 2,000 years. They would both ultimately be replaced by the more practical and easy-to-learn alphabetic scripts of Phoenicia and Rome. Indus Script Now, it's well and truly time to venture away from our existing comfort zone. A civilization emerged at the same time as the ancient societies of Mesopotamia and Egypt, and it emerged at the end of the 4th millennium BCE. This civilization was based around the Indus Vera, which is like a spinal cord running right through the middle of the modern-day country of Pakistan. References to this area previously in the podcast are when we see the spread of agricultural behaviours during the Neolithic, possibly from the Near East to its West or otherwise independently. We will devote podcasts to the early societies of this region, which is often referred to as the Harappan culture. We do know that there was an awareness of each other from Sumeria to the Indus Valley, as we can see trade in luxuries such as lapis lazuli, so the awareness of each other is critical in discussing of anything that has emerged in both societies. We have evidence of a kind of script emerging in the Indus Valley during the 3rd millennium BCE, but much like the Elamite cuneiform scriptures, we have yet to be able to translate this successfully. The script was used quite frequently on objects such as pottery, tablets, bones and ivory. We also see evidence of it on stamp seals, and many of our excavations are actually of the impressions which have stood the test of time much better than the stamps themselves. The Indescript looks like a set of symbols, so it much more resembles a modern alphabet than Egyptian hieroglyphs do, for example. Due to the fact that we cannot translate this script, it is also impossible for us to categorically say that it is a writing system, although it is difficult for us to suggest anything other than it having an understood meaning. It is difficult to believe that this is just pretty graffiti. We don't know what language was spoken in this area at this point 
in history. Perhaps it was a kind of Harappan language and perhaps it was a precursor to the Dravidian languages, some of which still exist in modern-day Pakistan. We are really waiting for a Rosetta Stone artefact to emerge to be able to help us to make sense of the script. Maybe a trade agreement between Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley. Until then, the Indus script will remain a mystery, but one of those many beautiful historical mysteries that our world contains. Chinese writing. Let's continue our journey around the ancient world and to all of those places that we are yet to visit during the course of Volume 2. Last time we discussed China was back in Volume 1 when we discussed cultures that had begun to emerge around the Yangtze and Jello rivers cultivating rice and millet among other things. Other Neolithic cultures would emerge around the Liao River in the north also. One of the Yellow River sites is called Jiahu. Artifacts from this site date back to a period between 8 and 9,000 years ago and they contain some very fascinating symbols. The artifacts are actually tortoise shells and much debate exists about the significance of the symbols. The symbols do resemble some of the written symbols of ancient China some 5,000 years later, but that is the big problem. The gap of 5,000 years does not suggest that there can be a viable connection between these symbols and have led experts to doubt that this is a form of written lingual communication as we know it today. Personally, I would encourage anyone to look at them and draw their own conclusions as they are absolutely fascinating as a discussion point. Even though some of the symbols of Jiahu resemble ancient Chinese writing symbols, this is not the only instance of symbol use in prehistoric China. One of China's most celebrated Neolithic sites is a place called Banpo Village. We would suggest that this site near the Yellow River was occupied around 6,000 years ago, so we're in late prehistory here. Due to its location and age, Banpo is regarded as a type site of the Yangshao culture. The Banpo symbols have been found on their pottery and it also relates to symbols found on other artefacts from other Yangshao cultures. So this demonstrates that the symbols must have a meaning. Similarly to the Jahu symbols, experts tend to avoid calling this a writing system, but it really does depend on what you regard as a writing system personally. Is it enough that pictures and symbols have a meaning? Or do you need to be able to construct spoken sentences with syntax? As with the Jahu symbols, at the very least the symbols discovered at Banpo should never be ignored in a discussion about the emergence of writing. The most well-known instance of ancient Chinese writing, which is generally accepted as written language, is on the oracle bones of the 2nd millennium BCE. The Shang dynasty is believed to have emerged around 1700 BCE and they would have a very unusual spiritual practice. Sometimes they would take a tortoise shell, but otherwise they were happy enough to use the bulky shoulder bone of an ox, for example. Written inscriptions were made on these bones and successful translations appear to have revealed texts of futuristic predictions 
and current affairs. The futuristic predictions seem to be a willing of good fortunes and it has been speculated that these predictions could be answered by the spirits depending on the noise emitted from the fire on which these bones were cast. This method of seeking responses by casting inscribed bones into fire is called pyromantic divination. Another consideration that we must take is that we speak of tortoise shells and animal bones and theories have been put forward about the cracking of bones within the fire representing spiritual responses which would have likely been sought after. And what we must think about is the fact that we should not be surprised to find that things like tortoise shells and bones are what we have found due to the fact that these items are not perishable. Other items would have either been burnt beyond recognition or not survived until the modern age for us to rediscover. However, there is certainly a relationship between these ancient written Chinese symbols and modern Chinese symbols. So we really are looking at something which is the beginning of the evolution of modern Chinese writing, which is not something you can necessarily say about Egyptian hieroglyphs or Near East cuneiform, which had to undergo radical alterations before we can compare it to the scripts of today. Evolution of writing. When we look forward at the most ancient writing styles, we notice that writing tends to evolve in similar ways wherever you go. Obviously, if you were to invent a pictorial style of writing in which every noun was represented by a picture, you would end up with thousands of symbols which would need to be remembered or recognised. This would mean that writing styles would have to be exclusive to those who had access to that information. It wasn't very accessible and if writing needed to be something that would act as an aid to communicate within a society, then it would need to evolve. Egyptian writing is a great example of what we're trying to explain here. There have been over 6,000 different written hieroglyphic characters discovered from ancient Egypt. So you would have to be taught what all of these mean by a priest or an elder in order for you to be able to then pass it down to the next generation. A number of forms of evolution naturally happen to these early writing systems. Simplified and cursive systems would start to emerge which are simplified written characters so where you might have carefully drawn a picture of a bird in earlier times you might find that you can convey the idea of this bird with a couple of simple strokes of the stylus as opposed to the elaborate depiction. If Egyptians were writing in this manner on papyrus and they didn't know the correct symbol for a particular word then they may benefit from an alternative such as a character that would represent a vocal sound instead. So if you didn't know the official hieroglyph for a particular object, you could still write something because you would know how to write the phonetic sounds for the word instead. Over time, the phonetic symbols would become more and more popular and this ties us back to the beginning of the podcast and the difficulty of the 19th century philologists to translate the script when they couldn't determine which symbols were pictograms and which were phonetic. Linear A and Linear B 
Linear A and Linear B are writing forms associated with the second millennium BCE cultures of the Minoan and the Mycenaean. Let us return to the idea of the evolving Egyptian hieroglyphs being both pictorial and phonetic. If we compare this to the Linear B system of the Mycenaean Greeks, we can also see that their system of writing contains pictorial and phonetic characters. The phonetic sounds were invariably syllabary, which means that they would have had a consonant and vowel combination sound, much like the English words no, go, high, far or to, for example. The Linear B system has been translated very successfully. With Linear B we can see an advancement of the writing system with less than 200 characters representing their entire system. The successful translation of this script is thanks to the English philologist Michael Ventris, who was born in the English county of Hertfordshire in 1922. Ventris served his country during the Second World War, but afterwards he was able to decipher the Linear B writing system by recognising its relationship with modern Greek. Tragedy struck when Ventris was sadly killed in a road accident in 1956 at the young age of 34. His life and legacy were significant regardless of his premature death. The Linear B system is believed to have taken over from the Linear A system which developed in Minoan Crete. This is similar in some aspects to the way that the Akkadians adopted cuneiform from the Sumerians. The Linear B writing system evolved from the Linear A writing system. So it would make sense if we were able to use our knowledge of Linear B to be able to decipher Linear A. But unfortunately, it is not that simple. We don't know enough about the language of the Minoans to be able to make what we know about linear scripts make any sense to us today. This must be very frustrating for philologists as we have enough artefacts from Minoan Crete to be able to recognise an evolution of the Linear A script from an earlier form of Cretan hieroglyphs. But once again we just don't know anything about the Minoan language and this could open up so many stories about the first ancient European societies if only we could translate these writings. What we can say about the later Linear B scripts is that we are now seeing writing styles that much more resemble what we can call the first true alphabets. And that's where we're going to break off this week on the history and the story of writing. Uh, we uh, are going to venture into the story of alphabets next week, so we're going to complete this two-parter. And uh, it should be very interesting to see how um, the next stage of development relates to the alphabets which we use today. And we're going to take a, a look at some of the writing materials that have emerged and also how writing has spread around the world and altered into what we know today. So it will be an, an interesting episode uh, next week. And um, we've set it up well with this week's episode. So thank you so much for listening in again. Now it's been a horrible week. My laptop decided to die and as such I thought that I had lost a lot of my History of the World podcast work and I was really panicking at one point 
to be honest, I didn't think we were going to get an episode out this week. I've written something like 8,500 words about the story of writing and I thought it was all lost. But fortunately, I was I had backed it up and I didn't realise I'd backed it up. I, I really did think that I'd lost it. And um, thank goodness for that. We were able to recover it and I didn't have to write it out all over again. We would have been waiting a week or two for the new podcast episode and thankfully I've been able to crack on. We've been making really good progress with this volume. We've knocked out 21 podcasts in a row every week and um, it would have been a shame to have had to break it up for something so frustrating. So uh, yes, we've had to do an awful lot to recover the podcast and get the episode out this week I've done nothing else for the last two days other than uh, scrap around to get everything back in order all the little jingles and things like that the programs and software that I use uh, it's been a bit of a nightmare but I am so so relieved that we've got there now the uh, the guest voice that you heard at the beginning of the podcast something quite new uh, was a gentleman who I mentioned briefly last week he's called uh, Tom Blair and he represents the Robots Radio website and the new podcast called Myth. Now I would suggest that you go to the Robots Radio site to find this new podcast. It is uh, tricky to find but if you follow the right link you can find it and uh, it's a very good, it's a very well presented podcast, very professional in its output and it's uh, it's currently uh, looking into the the mythologies of creationism, and uh, it's absolutely fascinating because we've covered it briefly. Uh, we've touched upon these subjects with the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians and all of their mythologies and stories, and and we're in turn going to be revisiting it again when we look at the Greeks and the Romans. The, the lot of mythology with their societies. And um, we're not going to be able to avoid talking about it. Some people don't really like to hear about it because it's not true history. But I think it is fundamental to the to the core of what people are and how they think. And it's it's really fundamentally part of the religion of people, and uh, it's such an important part. So this podcast could serve to be extremely useful uh, to those of you like that aspect of human history the mythology of our of our being and what was going through our mind 5000 years ago 4000 years ago and why we believe that we were on this planet in the first place so it's fundamental so I, I highly recommend you give it a listen it's a very good podcast very easy to listen to now we've got two new Patreons this week. Uh, we've got Mark Veldman and Andy Hardy who are donating to the podcast to keep it running. Thank you very much gentlemen, it's highly appreciated. And uh, we're also on a new site called Listen Notes. Um, we, we might have been on there for some time, sometimes I don't discover these things until months down the line, uh, such is the nature of podcast distribution and uh, we're sort of actively looking through them uh, through them and audio boom for someone to sponsor the show as well so if you're interested in sponsoring the show then please do get in touch uh, there are lots of different um, aspects 
to the show. We're, we're attracting around about 25,000 listens per month as it stands at the moment, and there's scope for that to improve. So um, if you are interested, please get in touch. If not, then there are other ways that you can support the podcast, as I generally mention. You can rate and review the podcast, and that is equally helpful because it starts to enhance our exposure and more people... Uh, become aware of the podcast thanks to the fact that you've rated and reviewed it and pushed it up the relevant sites charts so don't forget to do that if you don't want to make a financial contribution you can do just as well by rating and reviewing the podcast so that leads me on to one of my favorite times of the month and that's when we have a look at the apple podcast reviews from people who have been kind enough to actually do those reviews and give us a rating and they're the people who are helping us to gain more exposure so let me read them out out of courtesy to those who made the effort so we've got uh, five stars from crazy bout history from the united states of america who's put outstanding concise well presented easy listening with no background noise i'll tell you what that background noise is a factor because when i did set up my new sort of studio setup and uh, i went out and actually bought an office chair so that i wouldn't be sitting on the floor anymore I could actually sit in a proper chair on a desk and actually record these podcasts. Um, I bought the noisiest chair in the shop. I didn't realise it at the time until I put it together, but now I have to sit absolutely still uh, when I do this podcast, otherwise you will just hear this chair. Um, we got a podcast uh, review from Mug Eye Inc. from Canada. Chris is great. Fun and entertaining. I always can't wait for a new episode to come up. Keep up the good work. Uh, another one from Oana Maria Olia from Romania. And uh, I hope I pronounce your name somewhere near correctly. Um, it's uh, the, it, the review says, amazing, amazing work, Chris. I've been listening to your podcast for a while and it made me rediscover my passion for history. I think my favourite episode is the prehistoric villages one. Very funny. I think that was the one where I was making fun out of uh, the, the decorations that some people were putting up there. I am from Romania, so this summer I hope to visit Peșteracu Uasi, the cave of bones you mentioned in volume one. Last summer I visited an artist making reproduction Kukuteni prehistoric ceramics. So now I own my very own Venus figure. Anyway, keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Oana. Um, John the History Buff from the United States of America. Put, um, I love listening to Chris Hasler's History of the World podcast. He has done his research and I love his enthusiasm and his British accent. He makes it interesting and I always look forward to each and every podcast. This is a must for all history fans. Check out the podcast one and all. You won't regret it. Thank you so much. Uh, Jackson L22 from the United States of America said, Excellent comprehensive history of humanity. This podcast gives a detailed and comprehensive history of humans, starting with the first hominids and progressing through prehistoric, ancient and eventually recorded history. Chris has a fantastic British narrative voice, the objective narrative style that lets the listener develop their own opinions along with him. Highly recommend. Thank you. Uh, Jitfast from the United States of America. Very well done. Excellent overview by a host who does detailed research. I love how he makes chronological markers to help draw a timeline and tell a story. It is a logical presentation and since it has a broad scope, I appreciate it a lot more than the professional historians. Have been listening since he published episode four and can't wait for his new episodes. Thanks for the great work. Thank you. 
And then uh, finally, we've got Arabella Munro from Australia, who's put uh, informative, clever, but accessible, easily understood, but not dumbed down. Perfect accompaniment to a walk to work. Well, wonderful. Uh, thank you to all of you. Thank you to all the patrons, the sponsors, and uh, all of the reviewers. All of your efforts to promote the podcast and help the podcast is highly appreciated. We did also receive a recommendation, before I forget, from Dan Antoni uh, on the Facebook page, and he put, absolutely love the podcast, mate, and I look forward to following it over its course. So uh, uh, slip in a little thank you there to Dan. Well, that's about it for another week. I'm going to go and put my feet up and go to sleep for about the next three days, I think, just to get over all the stress of getting this particular episode out. Uh, but thank you ever so much for listening. Next week, it's going to be great. It's going to be alphabet scripts and how it relates to us in the modern age. So it's going to be well worth a listen. Until next week, have yourselves a wonderful week and we'll catch up again. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the Support the Podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.